welcome to the Beat Around the Bench podcast, a podcast about woodworking, good times, and general jackassery, with your hosts, Jess of Jess Building, Colton of Colt Crit, and Ross of RNC Woodworking and Design. You can find us all on Instagram, YouTube, and TikTok. Now for episode 5.2 on Deadly Ground. Today's guest is Greg Spencer, an, an official boyer. What's up, guys? Gentlemen. How's it going? Thank you. Going well. Thank you for jumping onto this recording. And for those of you who have not listened to uh, episode 5.1, Forced Vengeance, we actually tried to record this episode beforehand and had some technical difficulties. So Greg Spencer has uh, graciously agreed to re-record this episode. Let's try Sherman. Sherman, I mean, mean, it's just as good. It's okay. It's close, man. I've been called worse. But Greg, yeah, Greg, Greg S. (laughs) Yeah, just Greg. Uh, He is here. with it. And uh, Greg is a boyer. So let's let's first and foremost start out with that. Greg, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, Let's play the dating game. What we got here? Oh man, I you know I'm an old guy. I've been around for a hot minute. I've uh, been married almost 30 years. I have four kids, triplets that are 14, and then a 20 year old daughter. And when you have that many kids around the house and you want to do cool stuff, you have to make cool stuff, that's right? Fair. So, so oh, yeah. that's what kind of like kicked me off in making bows again. Like I grew up in archery. And decided at one point in time I needed a new bow and didn't want to spend the big bucks for it. So I spent even bigger bucks buying machinery <laughs> and making them. It's, it's kind of like uh, it kind of like guys in a band who are like, man, I'm going to bring $5,000 worth of gear to make $50 tonight. I'm excited. Absolutely. 100%, yeah. man. I, I can't even, I won't tell you how much I spent on woodworking machines just to make bows hey, you're, you're, because my you're, wife you're may actually here. listen at the point. <laughs> yeah. You don't want to get in trouble for that. Yeah. No, no. So, so how long have you officially been, uh, been a boyer, I guess. So, so I dug back in the archives uh, the other day and it was like, we're, we're coming up a little bit more than 10 years. So we're about 11, 12 years into it. Okay. So, uh, started as a hobby, did a little bit and sold a little bit, auctioned some off for charity auctions and stuff like that, which was really cool, but switched gears and moved it more back to the hobby because honestly, you know, you love it more when it's a hobby than when it's a full-time business. Okay. Okay. Um, I know what actually prompted getting you onto the, obviously, you know, just talking to other woodworkers is what we're here to do. We talk to each other. Right. Um, what prompted this, though, is we actually had, when we did a post on our Instagram page of what some of our listeners wanted to hear, one of them said, I want to learn more about making arrows or what kind of wood you need to make an arrow. So that's kind of what started this. And luckily, Colton, obviously, um, in the background, we learned that you guys are family friends. Is that correct? Absolutely. I've known Colton for for quite some time, probably about twenty years now. <laughs> yeah, so Gr- Greg's actually been a mentor for me as far as woodworking. Um, anytime I have like a, a big question, I'll I'll shoot it his way. Um, yeah, and, and I'll uh, I'll give him advice. Yeah. It's not always good, but he has ten fingers, so it's must be okay. Yeah, yeah no, it's always been solid, but. Um, <laughs> 
Okay. Uh, so last year, here, I'm Greg, just in general, let's just pause for a second. I just marked it. Baked ash. We've got like little, little like charcuterie. Did he switch it? And, um, yeah, those, I still have half that stack. Uh, they come in pretty handy, but it's kind of neat. Like some of those pieces of wood in that box, I couldn't even tell, or like, it was like, yeah, don't, don't use it. All of these and like a glue up cutting board. Um, and he's like, then some, some will smell like cinnamon when you cut it. And, uh, it's kind of neat. Put my hands on, on some of those woods. Yeah, that's, that's a cool thing about making bows is you get to use a lot of crazy woods that you won't use in just general woodworking. A um, lot of really cool stuff that's hard. Some of it's really works easy. Some of it smells different. It's some pretty cool so, stuff, though, because like from an aesthetic standpoint, you can you can take a wood and, and match it with a contrasting wood to to make it make it look how you want. Yeah. Right. And with bows, you can get some designs that are are pretty crazy when you're doing fiberglass backed bows. So, uh, so, so I fun. guess to make sure we answer the question of our listeners, is there a specific wood that you would prefer to, or that is most beneficial to use for an arrow? If you're making your own arrows, absolutely. There, there are. You can use a ton of woods. Honestly, there's. A lot of woods are suitable for making arrows, and some are better. The absolute best, the gold standard, is Port Orford cedar. Good luck getting good Port Orford cedar because you need you need a good straight grain, right? Because you don't want to make an arrow where you have a whole lot of grain run out going all the way across the arrow or anything like that because it's just going to create a weak point. You have to be anything with bows, anything with arrows, you have to be real mindful of the strength and the integrity of that specific piece of wood. And so with, with arrows, run out is a big thing. And different woods, you can use poplar, you can use hickory, you can use even oak. Uh, fir is another good choice. Uh, I've made some arrows before out of pine, that just a pine two by four that had exceptional grain, but you just have to really look for the, for the grain. And arrows are a lot of fun to make. A lot of they're time consuming to make because you're taking a square stick and making it into a round mm -hmm. dowel, right? And and that process in of in and of itself takes a lot of time. My personal favorite way to do that is with a finger plane. I'll take a board that has like a V notch in it so I can put that square dowel in it and hold it in place, a stop on the end, run my finger plane down it flip it over, run my finger to plane down that edge again until I basically wind up with an octagon. Uh, maybe take a couple more swipes along the way to get it closer to round and, and the diameter I'm looking for. And then after that, you go to sanding to make it truly round. Could you do that? Um, another important thing with, with arrows is spine because when you shoot the arrow, the arrow actually bends around the bow. And when it bends around the bow, it has to reflex back and forth. Kind of, I, I, kind of looks like a fish going downrange for just a hot minute. And that spine, the amount it bends, will determine the, whether it fits that particular bow or not. So it's a, it's uh, an art and it's a science yeah, at the same time. So first off, Colton, I, you were so asking something. Go ahead. When you see a slow-mo of an arrow, it's moving, you know, like a fish. But I didn't know I did that around the actual bow. I guess it makes sense. 
But um, so I had a question. So if you use like a denser wood, say I use like a make like a like a like a paduk arrow, um, is that gonna have a different velocity than like say I made one out of poplar, like like a lighter wood, less, less dense wood? Is it gonna be like, well, like a better? You know, absolutely. Like it's gonna be a heavier arrow, right? Uh, especially and depending on how it's. Yeah, and it depends on the bow because you really want to match the the weight of the arrow, that the heaviness of the arrow to the bow. Typically with traditional archery, which we're, we're talking about, you're looking at about eight to ten uh, pound or eight to ten grains per pound, right? So in weight, so it's you're shooting for a certain weight of arrow. For poundage of bow. Is there a difference if you were talking about a longbow versus a crossbow versus your standard as bow you're talking here? I, absolutely. Crossbows and, and uh, like your um, compound mm-hmm. bows, you're shooting much lighter arrows. You're shooting a whole lot lighter arrow than you would through a traditional okay. bow. They're just made different. They can take the abuse a little bit differently. And so the the weight of the arrow actually helps it, you know, helps the bow not have as much vibration at the end of the shot, yeah. if that makes sense. Because that weight is taking the energy from the bow and, and pushing it into the arrow. Okay. Very cool. It also slows it so, down, though. Kind of a trade-off. We were talking about using a finger plane as your favorite method to make an arrow. So two questions I have. Yep. Number one. If you're making an arrow from scratch, what is your, and you have the the day or multiple days to devote to this single arrow, what is the start to finish build time? And then the follow-up would be, would it be faster or possible to either lathe uh, the arrow and or make some sort of doweling jig? Absolutely is. Absolutely is. Doweling jigs are amazing. They work great. I've, I've actually made uh, a jig before to where you used a router with a straight, you know, just a straight router yeah. bit in it. And you'd put the, put the square stock in a drill, run the drill. So it spins as it pushes it through. And then you'd have a, a tighter hole, the diameter hole that you want it to be on the other side. It would actually burnish the shaft as it, as it goes through and, and make the arrow a little bit harder, C- certainly faster. Mm-hmm. A crazy messy process, as you know, like with a router, anything gets crazy and messy when you're taking off a lot of wood yeah. at one time. Um, but yeah, definitely a faster way to do it. Definitely works very well. Um, and there's and there's some other dowling jigs out there. There's commercial dowling jigs out there you, you can get that will work to do it as well. It's just the finger plane to me is it's it's a more intimate mm-hmm. process. And you're spending yeah. a lot more time with it. You know, we all love intimacy, well, right? Kind of, yeah. I mean, I mean kind of come like on, get real about it. Shooting them. I get it. You get to feel it. But, uh, yeah. like, <laughs> that's right. Yeah, exactly. I was thinking, like, exactly. I mean, you know, <laughs> right. That took right. a very Italian. If I want to kill somebody, I want to, I want to enjoy the process, oh, yeah. the whole oh, process. Like, like killing the rabbit, you know, I want to enjoy the whole process <laughs> of it. And, and this is part of it. <laughs> Well, you said that you yeah. have, um, you told us before that you have triplets, so you're trying to take as much time as you can out there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, a little quiet time in the shop and, you know, 
it, it's funny because I, you know, there's there's opportunities like there's OJAM and MoJAM and these jamborees and they self-bow jamborees is what they're called. And it's, a self-bow is a bow that's made just of one piece of wood. You actually take the log and you split the log along the grain and you split it down into a stave that's a couple inches wide. And then you chase a ring with a draw knife, like the, and the entire mm. back of the bow is the face, the face of the bow is one growth ring of the tree. Uh, yeah. So it's a, a crazy process, a lot of work, a you lot of fun. You have to be totally precise uh, with that. But absolutely. Absolutely. It's not as, it's not as difficult as it sounds, but it's time consuming. Like everything that's done that way is time consuming, okay. right? Because you're using draw knives and then hand scrapers, cabinet scrapers mm -hmm. uh, to get all the extra crap off of it down to that growth ring you want to. And, and when you screw up invariably and you nick that growth ring, uh, okay, we got to go down to the next growth ring now. Start, start again. Gotcha. You know, mm. uh, but I, I took my boys when they were what about five years old and we'd go camping out for a, two, three days. Oh, Greg, you cut out. Yeah, okay, we lost okay. you when you said you took your five-year-olds camping. Right. And we would take, the camp, take them camping, be doing this jamboree, and let them run through the woods, be little wild men, and uh, <laughs> while Dad was working on a bow. It was kind of fun, kind of cool. Of course, they nice. had their own bows, and we'd go shoot the range a couple of times a day and let them enjoy that. Do you do any of the metal work to make your own arrowheads or are you sourcing those? What what are you doing there? Okay, so I would make I made a few trade heads, which are just essentially flat metal and cutting them into a triangular shape and then sharpening the edge. But for the most part, I bought all my arrowheads. Uh you have you can taper the shaft, which is using a big pencil sharpener basically, taper the shaft down and glue mm -hmm. a head onto it. Uh or you can half the shaft. And you take and you and you put the trade point in. You cut a slot, put the trade point in, and then use some sinew or artificial sinew and actually put the arrowhead into it. Okay. And do you have a preference on the feathers for your arrows? The, uh, typically use turkey feathers. That's the most common feather, the most widely available feather for an arrowhead. I mean, you could use any feather. Some feathers aren't legal to use, though. Most feathers aren't legal to use. Okay. Okay. Uh, so I have a question. So can you, I mean, I know a little bit about bows. I've always used compound bows. That's what my uncle had. That's right. Uh, I used to, he lived at a place in Tallahassee, and I used to shoot um, with his. But can you go over the anatomy of a bow? just for people that really don't know much about them. Cause they know what they look like, right? There's right. The part where you grab it, the top part, the bottom part, they don't, that's pretty much as far as what a lot of people go and what it's called. Absolutely. As well as the arrow. Okay. So, so basically you have, we're talking traditional archery here, right? We already mentioned right. the self bow being made of one piece of wood. And you have mm -hmm. laminate bows. You can have tri-lam bows, which are just three laminates of wood that are put together. You can have bamboo-backed bows, which have a piece of bamboo that's on the back of the bow, and they'll have a different wood, like ipe or um, 
or boat arc or, or something of that nature, a harder, dense, thick wood mm. on the belly of the boat. Oh, we're very familiar with the, the Ipe here. It's on the, Ipe. The bench <laughs> yeah. 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 I, I believe actually it's Ipe, um, similar to the snipe wood. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, nice, Sorry. hard wood, hard Hero. to work with, right, and everything else. Just imagine doing it all with hand files and, and sandpaper. I so. mean, to be fair, that's going to be less deadly than using fine. some of the power tools we use to create the awful dust that those exotic woods make. Oh, but my yeah. gosh. Yeah. No kidding. No kidding. But, so what is what is the part that you hold on to called? Uh, the part? riser. That would be the riser. The riser. That's typically we'll call it the handle on a long bow but if it were if it were a three-piece bow where you had limbs and the riser separate definitely the riser so you got the the handle you have the back which is the part of the bow that faces away from you and the belly which is the part that faces toward you as you're holding it and shooting it okay okay so most of the bows i made uh were fiberglass backed bows so you'd have fiberglass on the back and fiberglass on the belly and then you would have, I, I ran between two and three laminations in the core of the bow, which would be, you know, depending on the bow and the poundage, they would vary in thickness. There'd be a taper in one of them. Uh, so it would be thinner, much thinner at the end and, and thicker, thicker toward the bay, to the, toward the center of the bow. Uh, some of them How had dual tapers to where you had a thick tip. It got thinner and then it got thick again. Uh, just depending on what I was trying to achieve on where I wanted the bow to bend and everything else. Uh, then yeah, how, on the how, how thin are you making those when you're okay? Like, if so, you're tapering it down, like how how thin of a piece are, is it at the where the I guess the drawstring would be right. Attached? Okay, it it depends on what weight you're shooting for. Right for the entire thickness of the limb, it could go up to around a quarter of an inch entire thickness. Uh, but the fiberglass on the back and the belly. Uh, usually it was either 0.040, 40 thousandths, or it'd be 50 thousandths thick for the fiberglass. And you buy those sheets pre-made. Uh, now the veneer, the pretty part, because we'd use clear fiberglass a lot of the times, you can get mm-hmm. colored or clear. Uh, the veneer would go down to about 20 thousandths thick. So you could hold it up to the light. And with these exotic hardwoods, you're looking through the through it and you could see through the wood when you hold it up to the light. So are you just using epoxy then to set all those layers of fiberglass and everything else? Absolutely. Losing epoxy to put all the veneer wood veneers together and put all the fiberglass on it and everything else. You, you stack it all up, put it on a form, clamp it down and make a huge mess. When you do it, you have epoxy everywhere, all over you, all over the tools, all over everything. Uh, yeah, it's, it's a fun process, right? Speaking of tools, what kind of what what is your shop setup looking like? As far as like what kind of what kind of tools would a typical boyer have in their shop? Sanders of all sorts of varieties, like sanders. You talk about exotic woods and making sawdust. We're let's let's couple exotic woods, sawdust, and sometimes carbon fiber, which is even worse than anything you can imagine. Mm. And then other times just fiberglass, which, you know, fiberglass will stick around in your lungs forever anyway. It's uh, like asbestos, you know, it can't yeah, kill you until yeah. after it's you're done. Well, but fiberglass is a little nicer than asbestos. It's just going to make little nodules in there, take up space. That's all it does. Yeah. Um, it's fine. Yeah, yeah, it won't. It won't. Yeah, it will. Okay. That's why you but, have two lungs. You really only need one. 
It's that's fun. right. That's right. That's why a good a good dust collector and good mask are are really nice to have. Like mask essential dust collector, super super nice. Uh, but bandsaw and sanders. I I when I was going full swing with my bow bow making, I had uh, a a six by one thirty two delta sander edge sander that i would use uh i could mm -hmm. it was a beast of a sander made a horrible mess everywhere there's no good way to put dust collection on one of those uh, <laughs> it was and took up a tremendous amount of room and only weighed several hundred pounds you know only uh, of course yeah Wonderful. only only but that and a bandsaw honestly uh, for bow making a, a good edge sander and a bandsaw are lifesavers like they're they can you can set it up and do almost everything you need on those two tools. Um, before I had the edge sander, though, uh, I had an old Harbor Freight uh, 6x32 or 36 or whatever it is, uh, horizontal belt sander, and just used the crap out of that sucker. It uh, it works. It gets the job done. Uh, it, it uh, you know, it'll, it'll do, the, do it. Especially if you're just looking at making a handful of them. If you're looking to do production, though, edge sander, big edge sander. So I have a question. What what are you are you putting these like in a form when you're doing the epoxy and stuff like that? Uh, yes. To bend it around and clamp it. Yes, exactly. And that's what holds your shape in these bows in the laminated uh, fiberglass bows. That's exactly what holds your shape. And so do you, how do you know how to, what to make the form to? Uh, like what, what's your conference? It, like, it how depends do you know? on what you're trying to achieve. That's honestly, that's what it comes down to. And then there's some trial and error involved in that. So when you're, gotcha. when you're working on a new bow, like let's say we wanted to go and make a, a, uh, a recurve bow. And we decided we wanted to do something that was, a little more traditional, something you'd see back off the shelf in the 50s or something like that. It's kind of straighter in the back, uh, not a lot of deflex. And, you know, you just kind of draw it out and you may take a, a old bow that you have and, and trace it out and get the curve kind of the where you like it. And then build a bow and see how it shoots. And if it shoots like a dog, you throw the form away, burn it and start over. <laughs> Where do you even start with, though? Yeah, well, typically you kind of have an idea, right, what you want to achieve at the end game. And once you've made a few forms and you screwed up enough, uh, you okay. kind of have a general idea of where you're going to go with it. Um, personally, my favorite form that I have, I have a, a uh, form for a longbow that's about 62 inches tip to tip. And uh, I have some deflex built into it, which is the limb bends back toward you when it's unstrung and then i have a reflex that brings the tips out about an inch and a half past where it deflexes to or about about an inch and a half out past the riser not where it deflexes to but uh and then when you string it up the limbs on that particular bow are almost straight coming off the riser before you draw it and yeah. i've gotten some really good speed out of that bow when it's around a 55 to 65 pound range. So I don't want to steal his question, but Colton once has a, was going to ask you a question about the riser mm -hmm. that we didn't ask last time. Yeah. 
Um, so are you carving that like by hand? Um, okay. So when I would do the risers, I would, I would lay it out for my shelf and cut my shelf out with a bandsaw. Uh, and then from there I would go to shaping it by hand. Well, I would use files, of course, uh, hand files and, and file it out to shape by, to where I wanted it. And then sand. You ever use like a little Dremel? Nah, I've used a Dremel before, but honestly, tool. once you get good with a hand file, it's quicker. Like a good file will save you time over a Dremel because you're always jacking around with changing that little sandpaper on the wheel and everything else. Mm-hmm. Whereas a file, I'm oh, not having to change yeah, a probably, darn thing. See, what you need to do is make a silicone mold it. of your hand, right? And then 3D scan it and then have the CNC cut out exactly how your hand holds. I actually, oh, that I would was be, gonna, you can I was do about it. to ask that. Like, are on your bows or and when somebody is making their own bow, are you trying to make the grip on that as personal as your fingerprints? Or is it just kind of a, hey, this doesn't hurt in my hand? Like, what, what's the level of tolerance like, there? When I was making one for myself, I I would probably take a little bit more attention to my personal hand. Uh, if it's for someone else, you don't have their hand there all the time to do it. Um, and so you kind of go with a, a general not. shape. You have a little bit of a, <laughs> a, a bulb, kind of a bulb out toward the lower meaty part of the hand and, and kind of a thinner neck where your grip is and everything. That's what she said. Gotcha. Yeah, there you go. I, I actually have a question <laughs> so, uh, for you uh, with regards uh, to the community of boyers or archers in general. Uh-huh. I know in the woodworking community, there are definitely levels of, I don't want to say pretentiousness, but like there are people who are like, oh yeah, I use whatever tool I can get my hands on. And then other people who are like, nope, I'm only doing traditional like English style hand cut everything. And then right. you get people who are like, nope, I only use Japanese tools and they are like the most precise that you can get. Yep. Is it the same kind of thing like in the archery world where people are like, oh, well, the the Native American style is the greatest style ever or the, the English, you know, old English or whatever. I, I think in the archery world, there's there's a certain level that I can test your bow versus my bow and, and tell you which one shoots faster, hits harder, that sort of thing, right? Um, yeah. So I don't think it's a this is greater uh, type mentality. It's It turns into a more this is what I like and this is what I do because what I li- it's what I like, right? Mm-hmm. And okay. and so I've got I've got tools to build everything from those all the way up to the fiberglass back bows. And, and it just depends on what I'm doing, what I want to take. Like, it depends on what I'm going after. Am I chasing rabbits or I'm chasing deer or I, do I even care whether I kill something or not that day? You know, what, what bow I'm going to carry, right? But is, is there a difference in, I guess, the schools of, of thought on the styles of each bow? Like people regard French bows as the greatest ever or Japanese bows. Or- yeah, I think, I think there may be there, like the greatest bow ever is kind of a hard pressed subject. There's some amazing bows out there that are just absolutely insane in their construction now uh, because we have all these space age materials, right? And so they're able to achieve these crazy benchmarks number wise. And you look at their, their limbs when they're unstrung, they're just reflex to a, a crazy, crazy amount that you can't do without it. Those materials. Right. And so you yeah. have those things that are 
another level of bow. I, and it, it is, it's a crazy, crazy different level of bow. But it's like, at the end of the day, it's a bow and arrow, man. And people have been killing things with a straight stick since before <laughs> things were written down on paper, you know? That's and, true. It's true. There are cave drawings about it. Yeah, exactly. You have, we have the petroglyphs and we have bison that were killed in the day with a, a straight stick that probably had a ton of deflects. And by our, any standard today would be an extremely slow bow. Uh, but it worked. It was effective. And they used a stone head to do it. You know, it's, yeah. it's uh, those guys amaze me, man. There's some guys out there today that hunt with bows just like that. And it amazes me. They're fun to shoot. I like shooting them. I don't really hunt with myself bows. I, I hunt with my fiberglass back bows because I just, Do you have a compound bow? I, I don't anymore. I used to have compound bows. I think there may be uh, a kid's compound bow and a left-handed bow of my wife's in the house. That's compound steel, but I'd have to dig gotcha. under beds to find them. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> So random question for you. This is kind of getting back to the tools discussion. Mm-hmm. If, if we were to take you and take you out camping somewhere or drop you in the middle of the wilderness yep. and you could only take one tool with you to be able to, to craft your own bow and arrow set in the wild for survival's mm. sake, what would that tool be? A hatchet. Okay. Yeah. Didn't expect that. Did you? I so no. part of me was thinking that, but I I wanted okay. to get your answer. Yeah, no, you can you can cut your tree down, you can split your stave, you can use it as almost like a draw knife. You can scrape things with it and to to basically sand and shape how you need to. But I think a hatchet would be about the only tool that you could do almost everything you need. Matter of fact, I've read some some posts where they would have competitions building a bow with just a hatchet. And like some guys would get together and they'd build their bows and have a competition, see whose was better, you know, because that's what it's about. The one thing we haven't asked about on that is what are you making the the drawstring out of, Uh, whether it's in the wild or, or in your shop? Okay, in the shop, uh, I use a, a synthetic bowstring, uh, BCYX is what I use. It doesn't stretch. It doesn't have any stretch at all to it. Uh, so once you twist it, it, you twist the strings. It's called a Flemish twist. So you'll have your, your two different threads, depending on the strength of the bow that you're shooting. You twist and roll the string all together. It's not, there's not a knot in it, which is crazy when you... When you're when you don't know about it and know how it works and everything else, you're like, how can you have a bowstring that was cut to length on both ends and it's just twisted together and it actually holds together? But it does. Hmm. It works. It's the tension of the string pulls on everything and and your loops lock in and it works. But okay. uh, in the in the wild, the old strings were always made out of gut, almost every time really yeah yeah hmm. so what are you working on now greg i working working on a kayak build um my boys we have two kayaks right now it's just a regular old plastic you know one sit on top one sit in and uh i want i want kind of a traditional kayak man i want something skin on frame you know 
uh, something that you fill the water and, and everything else. And plus we need another one. I got too many kids. Like nobody wants gotcha. to go buy anything else. Let's make it. Like a herd. Uh, do you mean actual skin on frame? Like, are you finding hides to do this? With, I, that would, doing... that would be really cool. Uh, probably use canvas though for it. Ah, yeah. Yeah. They, they still call it skin on frame, but yeah, it's typically canvas or some sort of, uh, synthetic, uh, covering. So basically, if we ever go into a dystopian future in the U.S., uh, head, head to Dallas and find Greg. Yeah, yeah, this uh, is very true. Br- bring a hatchet. Bring, is sure. a, He'll yeah, have war paint on. Bring a hatchet and I'll trade surviving. for something. Yeah. 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 Right. Uh, and, and a steel. Bring a steel, too. Oh, gosh. I got you covered there. Yeah. All right. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Oh, I, I can't cook too well, but I can do other things good. Okay. I can cook. I can cook, too. <laughs> yeah, I'll do the cooking. Yeah. Excellent. So, uh, I'll keep you happy. Yeah. <laughs> is it, that's a different kind of party. Like, um, yeah. All right. All right. Let's go on to the next subject. <laughs> I'm drinking Bud Light right now. So, no, no. We, we bring up gut and there goes Colton. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so, uh, one of the things that we've started doing recently, and this will actually be a good segue is Jess also has a ton of, of knowledge on wood species and wood types and oh yeah, he's going to bring us in uh, the wood of the week. Nice. All right. So this week's wood of the week is actually um, called U Y E W, and the reason that I picked this was because for centuries this was what English archers used for a long time. Mm-hmm. Was you you uh, you? I have this me. book. Yeah, absolutely. Complete me. So <laughs> you knew all about it. Is really, really high on the scale of. You calling it fat? Well, it's <laughs> the the source that I have is rates it on six different things: impact resistance, stiffness, density, workability, bending strength, and crushing strength. And it has, that sounds like a marriage contract, like when God, when yes. a wife is judging, <laughs> will my husband be good? How does he rate on this scale? I don't know. I don't know what mine rates on this, but you is actually considered to be a softwood. Um, so uh, it, it is. It's one of those ones you can't glue together because it's so oily. Okay. Or it's not very easily uh, glued together, I should say. Um, and it is resistant to preservative treatment. So whether that be pickling or um, uh, oils. Well, I was going to say like a pressure treated type thing, a chemical treatment. It doesn't work because it's so oily. Um, it's pretty heavy for a softwood timber. It's 42 pounds per cubic square foot. So that's pretty heavy, comparatively speaking. Mm. We talked about balsa last week, and that's only what, maybe five to 10 pounds. Yeah. So it's pretty, it's pretty uh, heavy. Pretty dense. Um, what color did you say it was? It's honestly. It almost looks like, have you ever seen a house that has really old pine in it? And it's like that deep amber color by that time. Yeah. Uh, it kind of looks like that. So it's it's uh, it has some knots in it and stuff. But um, they use nice. it for interior and exterior joinery. Uh, it, it used to be the most traditional wood for Windsor chairs, the bent wood parts hmm. that they would bend on Windsor chairs. So I thought that was pretty interesting. But um, it is very, um, 
It's very hard. I, I would say it's probably harder than Colton and stiffer than Ipe, than Ipe or Teak by a mile. So well, pretty interesting. Here's a real question: it grows, uh, last, Does it the cornhole? Last thing, yeah. It's is <laughs> does it cornhole? I don't know. You can't glue it together. So no, I would say no. Right? Oh, um, not yet. <laughs> we could bow tie it or but it. it. There you it's go. It's kind of towards. It's kind of towards. It's in Asia, so like Algeria, Asia Minor, uh, the Himalayas, hold, Burma. Hold Europe. on, this it, it's naturally over in Asia, but it was the preferred correct. lumber for making English longbows. That is now, correct. They they depleted most of the source in England and were importing it later on. Ah, yeah. I mean, they depleted most of the forests in ah. the greater UK, which is why the US became such a highly yeah. sought after area. It's pretty immune hmm. to uh, beetles too, which is the biggest problem. Yeah, I was beetle, always but... more of a Who fan. Oh God, <laughs> who you? Because it's me and you. Anyway, oh, so that brings me you. to my useless wood fact of the week. What you got? So, yeah. so I, I remember when I learned this, and I had always wondered this. And I'm going to ask you guys and see if you know. Do you know what? generally determines whether they call it a softwood or a hardwood. If it has pine needles or not. If it has needles or leaves, mm-hmm. that is correct. So like this is considered oh, really? a softwood because it has needles, but it's not soft. It's hard as a rock. Right. It's just a it's just a general term. And a lot of people don't know that. So there you go. Yep. Has nothing to do with the density. Has everything to do with the the leaves that come off of it. The foliage. Absolutely. Is it a conifer? Or is it a leaf grower? Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. That's all I got. Okay. <laughs> well, thank you. Oh, guess what? Guess what happened today? What happened today? I finished that stinking house. Boom! Ah. Woohoo! That is it. No more construction for me, baby. Punch well, list is I mean, done. Yeah, until he needs to pay another yeah. bill. <laughs> no, no. This was for my. This was for my boss. He does want me to make him some built-ins, though, so that's cool. Okay. So I'm going to start for his own office at his house. So I'm excited about that. I'm going to order some stuff tomorrow. But yeah, it's back to working on the shop, getting ready for the CNC, and starting to get my whole furniture line, my SKUs ready. I like nice. it. What, yeah, do you have baby, a style that you're excited to start delving into on your SKUs? Are you looking at like uh, mid-century modern, or are you like? So I'm going to tell you what I'm going to tell you what I know a lot about is coastal because all the shops around me, all the shops around us, are coastal, some type of coastal flair mm. to it. Whether it's a whitewash that looks, or a driftwood, or extremely rustic, or extremely refined with like a teak, something along those lines, or ipe. Is there a minimum of like 27 pieces of flair, or do you, you know, <laughs> expect people to have a little bit more? I am going to shoot for minimal, my minimalist. One so, because everything feather. I did in the past was, I mean, I did stuff with bunches of colors on it. I've done a lot of crazy stuff. I'm going to, I'm going to aim this time around for high end, slick, simplified if if coastal mid-century is a thing i'm gonna invent it i'm sure people had coastal furniture in the 50s and 60s so i'm sure you can make it work i'm I'm gonna do something but i want to do some clean lines i oh so but remember that white oak that i told you Mm -hmm. i got from that buddy yeah 
It was red oak, and it was all about a half inch thick. So you paid one hundred and fifty dollars for all that? A half inch. Well, there's a bunch of it. I I can make some stuff out of it. I oh, can make right, some well, signs. Especially I can the make CNC. Some other things. That's perfect yeah. signage stuff, man. Like, yeah, because yeah, that, I can take it around. Piddle with. Well, it's it is. They are twelve foot long, but they're only maybe twelve to fifteen inches wide. So letters, man. That's letters. perfect for a sign. Yeah, a sign, a coastal yeah. sign. It'll say like Bel Air Beach or Clearwater, and have little little uh, latitude longitude on it or something. I saw the sign, that and guy. it opened up my eyes. Yeah, <laughs> I saw the sign. Mm-hmm. That's it. That's well, all I know, got. Hey, talking about CNCs, um, I just had a flashback. So whenever I first got my CNC, however many years ago. I consulted Greg on it. I remember this now. And uh, yeah, so Greg actually built his own CNC. Like, not not like the X-Carve where they send you everything and you follow the adult Lego. No, I, I've seen people do that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, yeah, dude, like he, order all your aluminum and all the different electrical components and spec it out. Is your CNC skin on frame? No, it is not. No, it is not. <laughs> it is heavy as crap <laughs> i i i believe you well i i tell you what we'll talk about this after the the show because i have a few that i've mentioned to my boss that i'm interested in so hopefully i picked yeah. well yeah greg let me ask how big's would, your bed well i was going to ask would you do it again oh, yeah. having built your own cnc would you do it again yeah because i have a cnc long- to build me a cnc <laughs> uh-huh yeah how, how long did it take you like too long like too long uh, you always say that. What is uh, that? So years ago, <laughs> like years and years and years ago, before it was like crazy popular to electricity. To, yeah, yeah. When you had to pedal <laughs> a bike to make electricity, I decided I was going okay. to do this project, and I bought all the electronics, and I actually wired up all the electronics, figured it all out, and then wound up putting all that crap on a shelf. Right. So I actually have a whole set of stepper motors and electronics downstairs. I could build another one out of smaller, a lot smaller than the one I built. Uh, but it's like, okay. And then I got real serious about it and spent about, I think, three to four grand on a four by four build, uh, all using aluminum ext- extrusion and uh, used linear rails, ball screws, whole nine yards, has, has a standalone controller. Uh, so yeah, we got a little crazy with it. Um, that's not that bad. No, what did uh, you have to do? Obviously, did you just use your laptop to control it all or? No, it's, I got a standalone controller. I, I programmed now at first I was using my laptop to control it all using the, you know, all that crap, but I'm like, no, this isn't long-term. That's not a good solution. Uh, got a controller, wired, wired the controller in and everything else. Now it's all USB. Okay. Yeah. Man, program on so the do laptop. you think, so do you think that if you had, especially with your knowledge, I mean, you've built one from scratch, right? Mm-hmm. So you pretty much understand everything that there is to know uh, about the inner workings of a CNC. Do you think that if you had unlimited money that you could, with unlimited time, of course, right. you could build a CNC that's better than what's out there for less money. I don't know that you're ever going, you'd have to have, because it's scalable, right? If I build one of a thing, it costs well, X yeah, amount, well, just a prototype. but I'd have to build, you'd have to build thousands before you get it. 
to where it, it's cheaper. You know, it's not about Sherman Sherman CNC. Mm. I can see it now on the sticker. Man, I can't oh, I even imagine that. CNC. Yeah. yeah, can't even imagine. Just do it. That's all you have to do. That'll be a rival brand. Spencer CNC is the way you want to go. Oh yeah, there you go. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Uh, I could actually, I could spin it off, and one of the companies could go bankrupt, and the other one could buy all the crap, and the debt could die with the one. There you go. Start with Spencer and with Sherman's. Yeah, follow me for my financial advice. That that sounds like some sort of politician way of doing things. Like I don't know. I I need to do some some of that with cold crit, honestly. Cheap (laughs) Chinese ones that everybody buys that are super cheap, and then upgrade all the stuff on. Right. Yeah. It could be it kind of like kind of like Roush does with Mustangs, right? It could be a Sherman. There you go. It could be a a Sherman. Call it the tank. CNC. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. Greg, you think we get some photos, maybe like a walk around video of that, and put on Instagram? I can see maybe when I clean my shop up. <laughs> That's All an right. idea. Bet. That's incentive yeah. for me to get out there and clean. My wife loves you now. Dad, tell me. Yeah. yeah. I think you have three children at home. Can't you tell them to clean it? Yeah, man. Yeah, I'd be they're my 14, kids. man. You know how effective <laughs> that is? <laughs> like, I can tell when a rock to go stay. clean it too, and it will work. What? Oh, when my kids come stay, I make them work the whole time they're here. I like that you opened that up with, I beat my kids, and then there was a pause. Yeah. Well, I used to. I don't have to do it anymore. Funny funny story. We were at church one day, and one of them was, like, messing around and, like, climbing, halfway climbing on me. And so I just, like, locked him up, put him in a little chokehold, and Mm -hmm. and when I let go, he fell down to the ground, and I... I kicked him a few times and said, quit playing around. You're making a scene. And he didn't move real quick, but he got up finally. Yeah. Yeah. It was okay. Yeah, it was in church. Jesus. It was fine. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Kept yeah. him quiet. And then you just did a little God bless. Yeah, there you go. That's exactly what it was. <laughs> God loves you. Now quit being a jack wagon. I so Colton, you. what's on your bench this week? More, oh, man. Is there um, is there an update on the behemoth? uh the behemoth of orders for you yeah so so uh huge update as far as our social media channels so we uh released our eighth month eight month update video um it shows our new process um of building these uh these cornwall boards and um it's done well um but the uh I don't know. It hasn't done as well as ones in the past, but which I expect that. So it's a two two minute thirty second video, right? And um, it's a cool video. I watched it. Like you did, it's you a did really, really well. Video. I appreciate it's it. A really good but, video. Um, yeah, I had to crank that out. Which I, I wanted to get through all of our first round of orders before I put that out, but um, but I yeah I, I'm I'm out of money, so <laughs> I got to sell some more of these puppies. But uh, so it kind of jumped us ahead a little bit on that, but. Yeah, it's gone well. Um, we've got a handful. So we, we did raise our price significantly. Um, and that's not from just trying to take advantage of demand or anything. It's simply from I extremely undercharged the first round. And yeah, I, I've, I lost money on this first round of sales. But they flew off. Um, at, I think it was like 500 bucks. Most of them were sold at that. They just flew off the shelf, right? I, I couldn't, like, every single day, uh, Shopify was telling me, well, you sold however many more, right? And um, 
But yeah, that's not a good price. So for us. on that, well, increase it so we're getting a little less. Well, let me let me ask a question on that, and and you don't have to give an exact price, but like with sure. that initial price of the five hundred, being that you hadn't really built these in scale before when you put that price out, were you even breaking even? Were your material costs covered? Like where were you at on that? Um, material costs were covered. It um. With yeah, epoxy well, it, and lights it, it depends and wood and everything. Which epo- so I, at first I was using uh, Total Boat um, Slow Hardener Epoxy, which is about twice as expensive as uh, the the Pro Marine, which is becoming Promise Marine um, epoxy we're using now. But uh, um, so yeah, I, I was always breaking even price wise, but so that wasn't boards- covering any of your labor. Yeah, well, I mean, what I hear yeah, is he and, was and, working at Chipotle yeah. like for half price making cornhole yeah. boards, you know, like making yeah. six dollars yeah. an hour, maybe. <laughs> yep. Yep. Um, well, yeah, sometimes. Well, also, I, I shot myself in the foot because a lot of these boards were bought for dates. Right. And we were so backed up and it was just chaos. So I had to overnight ship a lot of stuff. Ooh. And that ate my lunch. Oh. And anytime I had to overnight ship, I was I would lose money on that job. And um, I, I don't know. I guess I'm a bleeding heart. I uh, I wanted people to get their stuff and to enjoy it. And, well, that's um, good that you put customers first. And so I, I, I lost a lot of money. But um, through all that, I, I did put a lot of it into the business. Um, that's good. So, you know, we, we got uh, the, the new CNC, uh, just a ton of equipment. Uh, the shop is revolutionized from all that, but, but yeah, we need some more, uh, we need some fresh from fresh money in there, but, um, but yeah, it's, it's going well. Um, I feel like we're at a fair price now and we actually set up a, a tier system. And so it, uh, starts at, yeah, 500 goes up to, uh, 915 is what it is now. Um, and depending on what all you want, like whether you want resin or vinyl or, uh, the LEDs. Uh, things of that nature. Okay. But yeah, we're we're figuring out one day at a time. But yeah, it's gone good. We've uh, we've got some more sales picking up. Um, yeah. Very nice. Very nice. Well, Ross, what about you? Uh, I today officially had a near heart attack when I was doing the glue up of the legs on the antique table I've been repairing. Okay. Uh, and it was mostly because I had everything ready to go. And I started gluing everything on and I was trying to figure out the clamping because the top of the legs are sloped and angled. So I had to cut reverse pieces to then be able to get a straight Mm -hmm. clamp on there. And then unfortunately I got back to back calls for my day job that I had to take. And each of the people on the calls were like, Oh my God, how was your weekend? Which is great. (laughs) (laughs) It was great. I got to clamp something. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, all of a sudden, what I thought was going to be like a five-minute clamping job became like a 20-minute pause in the middle. And by the time I came back to it, stuff was starting Trouble. to set. And I started yes, to go no. into full coronary mode. Like, my heart is right. beating out of my chest. I'm getting so angry at everything. And, of course, then the the uh, cutoff pieces that I had put in, the little scrap pieces as the counter angle to have everything be able to be clamped came up. Off. Yeah. They're coming off because I'm trying to crank it too fast, and it was it was a mess. I ended up having to um, 
crank it. Well, I cranked it as much <laughs> as I could, but then I ended up having to, I heard, oh, Craig, that's what you said. No, Craig, um, Craig it. Yeah. It was too late for that. I ended up having to cut a Forstner bit hole, three eighth inch, then sink a massive screw in to be able to pull it all tight. And then I gotcha. came back with a matching red oak dowel that I grain matched to where everything was going in. So you can, like, if you don't know that it's there, you're probably not going to sure. find it. But oh, well I was done. doing everything that I could to not have to do that. I was trying to dish, just do joinery. There's still a few gaps I have to fill uh, that I'm not real pleased about, but I know everything is screwed in there now. It's not going anywhere. So now starts the arduous task of trying to match um, match the stain color. So I have actually a piece of, of red oak from the same piece that I cut all the legs out of. And I have segmented it into eight sections and I'm going to try different types of stain with pre-finish or no pre-finish to see what I end up having to do. Um, so that's one thing. And uh, I got a deposit this weekend for the ePay stools that I have to make. So the ePay stools will go into production pretty soon. But for that same customer, I actually uh, maybe have to finish Well, I'm supposed to finish it this week fingers crossed I'll be able to do it, but I have to build this a riser for their desk, for their, their computer. Uh, that's also a USB hub as well as uh, a technology hub and a uh, hidden charger for their phone all into this live edge slab with some drawers underneath that are all hand cut dovetails. And I don't think I'm going to finish it this week, but I'm going to do what I can. So I got a few things in the works at the moment. Good. Um, what's what's the status of the of the redwood mm, doors? What a topic to discuss. Yes, what a topic. Yeah. Um, I, my, my sister is asking me about those actually. Um, so you get you get yeah. a fist fight with her? No. Go for the no. I I brought it back to my shop and I have been looking at every aspect of it. And I, as we've discussed on prior podcasts, I don't want to be the one to like throw a a prior trade under the bus. That's not the way I'm trying to do this. Yeah, but, you never win with that. Exactly. Yeah. But at the same token, I got a picture of what paint he used, and it, it was literally like $35 for a gallon. He put two oh, coats no. of this white paint. Oh. And for me to get things back to where they should go, it's going to take me probably six hours of work per door. And even at that, I may or may not be able to like, well, it's not just a day. It's a day, but you break it up into multiple days because there's dry time between everything. So by the time I put in the materials and the time, the repair costs are going to greatly outweigh the cost of the door. So I actually have to reapproach this customer and ask what route she wants to go because it's kind of like three options. Option one, I repair everything and it's about the cost of what she paid for brand new doors. Option two, make brand new doors out of MDF and have somebody locally CNC the insert panels so that everything is uniform, but that way there's no grain, there's no nothing. Or option three, she orders kind of pre-done MDF, I guess, hollow core doors, and I have to then try and retrofit them to the house that's not square. So 
Well, at least you got templates for the ones you already have. Yeah. So we'll see what happens. That's going to be a fun discussion either way. So thanks for bringing it up here. Um, well, I mean, it's her fault <laughs> for hiring a crappy painter, man. What? And the Correct. foam board part, that's kind of. Correct. That's kind of between both of y'all. So I, mean, I would just put the. I, I was. I, I, I did what the customer asked. And now it's biting me in the ass. Just put the trim around it and be done with the it. The problem is the the problem is if I do that, unfortunately, on one side it'll be inset, and on the other side it'll be flush with the raised the the foam core panels because on one side they set just slightly proud, right? So when I put the trim around that, it'll be flush. When I do it on okay. the other side, because they set flush with the door, it'll be inset. So why don't you just get something as a shim that is the difference and put that on one side and not on the other? Because I have to raise the foam core board up to be flush is the issue. That's what she wants. She wants it to be flush on both sides. She doesn't want the trim. But on one side of the door, the foam core panels, because the initial fluted panel that I had made was inset. Right. And when I put the foam core board on, it was totally flush. Right. Now on the other side, it was just like the, the doors were like the panels were just slightly off center so that on one side it was flush. And on the other side, it was inset a little bit on the Uh side where it was flush. When we put the foam core on top of it, you can see the edge all the way around. So now those sit proud because it's foam core on top of what I had already made. So the issue is that I have to find a way to take off the foam core on the inset side or the flush side, put something behind it. And then, or the other option is take off the the foam core on the side where it's not as well done and it's sitting a little proud. And then I have to come back with a massive router sled and level out everything down that, you know, however, eighth of an inch. And then put the, the foam core back on. But either way, I, I'm looking at crazy amounts of time. Well, I guess what I'm saying is on the side where it's proud, yep. right? So the inset side, you can't do the inset side. When you put that trim around that edge, mm-hmm. it's going to be whatever the thickness of the edge of that trim is, Correct. right? So let's say it's an eighth of an Correct. inch. On the other side, just raise it however much it's proud, and they'll both be inset. It'll just be a little thicker. Okay. Yeah. Colton, what were you going to say? It's about a sixteenth of an inch, right? Yeah. From the picture Colton just sent me. Yeah. Just yeah, a sixteenth of an inch piece of wood and go yeah, around. I mean, you're never going to look at both sides and go, is that a sixteenth? Is that an eighth? Yeah, you know what that's I mean? True. You're not gonna... Yeah, but once you paint it, once you paint it with a good paint and not Twenty dollar a gallon paint from oh, Walmart. Oh God, the thirty dollar an hour paint. Hey, Walmart uh, paint's not bad now. Don't knock Walmart. Paint. Oh my gosh, <laughs> though. But yeah, the, I don't like, know about for furniture, but I paint. Did he even prime? Mr. Walmart, prime Florida it? man. Did he prime it? Yeah. He, like he, he's probably all he in apparently one. Pl- primed it. Um, but he's he has now spooked the customer as well because she's gone back to him to say, "Hey, this is what the guy who built the door said," and unfortunately. Um, he has said, well, you know, the doors weren't made well, and because they're made of red oak, they're going to expand and contract and it's going to crack the paint. And these doors are going to oh, be God. cracked in three years. Oh, no, no, no. And so no. now she's panicked either way. So it's, it's a bigger battle than it yeah. should be. 
Yeah. And part of me would love to just say, you know what, I, I don't want to step in the middle of this, but part of me also knows that's my work and I don't want it to look chintzy. Right. So, right. Is this I, like I understand that sometimes it's hard to say, I'm sorry, I don't think you're going to be happy with what I do. And yeah. Here's your money back. Uh, it is not a family friend, uh, but it is somebody in the community recommended me to this person. And so no, yep. the other guy. Oh, uh, I have no idea. I think it's just somebody she hired to paint. I don't know. I would just do one up nice and say, this is what it's supposed to look like. Do you want me to do this to all the other ones? It's going to cost you this much. But then when like she that's, says and, that's too much, then, I mean, obviously that's on how her. How much is it going to cost just with the trim and paint? I mean. That's going to take you six hours? To do all the different layers of taking everything down, putting on the, the, the wood filler where needed, putting on the, the kills uh, primer on multiple layers, putting around the trim, filling all the holes then coming back and putting multiple layers of paint and sanding in between. I'm looking at like uh, six hours per door. Yeah. 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 So it's to to fix it, to fix it correctly. It's around there. What's up, Cole? I I got a question on that. Like, do you think now that she's seen like that foam board, was like the, like the the runners and everything Mm -hmm. that she might be, like, would it be that hard to knock it out and, just like put like a what you glue it on there with uh type on two the entire thing is is styles it's (laughs) yeah no oh no no so the foam core board is put on with with a spray adhesive but all the inset panels inside so the panels for the door it's all styled and railed like you would for a normal door yeah 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 um and those are done with with um type on two so it's one of those that unfortunately if I tried to take off the foam core board, you'd see the original fluting I did that she didn't like. And I thought, oh, well, maybe I can break the door apart and put everything through the planer and no. clean it up. But then I'm rebuilding no. a door anyway. So, right. No, you can't do You're that. still six yeah. hours in. No, well, I was just saying to get the I, foam I was core picturing board and get her to like what you did originally. Maybe taking your, uh, your janky router sled and getting rid of that foam, foam board that way. I can, uh, I could pop it off. I could pop it off, but she wants the, she wants that foam core board. So the only thing that I can think of would be seeing, seeing the same pattern. That's not on foam core board, having it out of like MDF, but then it's, I'm still rebuilding a door either way. I'm building a new set. Wait, what if, what if, what you got the foam out, Mm -hmm. forget about the trim Mm -hmm. You get the foam out since you're going to see and see them anyway. Make them thinner so that they fit better. Can you get it thinner? Is it possible? Uh, the foam board? No, make it make it out of something else. Well, the problem I'll is fix the foam board. The the problem the foam is, board has her floating. Yes, the foam board has her floating, and the the panel underneath that foam core board has the floating that I had done. No, no, that's what I'm saying. But to, the, for, the, for me to be able to put the new layer on, I would actually have to route out the fluting that I had done before so that it was then be able to um, and then be flat to accept new foam core board or put on uh, that same fluting that she wants. But for me to do that, I'm then going to have somewhere around like a 16th of an inch thick at the thinnest part inset okay. panel and it, all of a sudden it becomes like a bigger headache than it's worth. Cause that with seasonal changes up here with four seasons, 
that is going to snap like nothing. So how thick is that foam board? Eighth of an inch. Yeah, you can't make anything. I was going to say if you could recreate her foam board in something else that was the right thickness, but I can, you're saying it's too thin. I can do it with MDF, but I would have to have somebody see and see it. Like that's the only way I can get it that uniform. I would basically have to have them almost MDF an entire like sheet of MDF, like do it all with that same fluting the way she wants. And that way I can cut the panels to what I need. But either way, I'm making a brand new, a brand new board. I get you. Or a brand You're new door. You're still at five or six hours, yep. no matter what, with the paint and everything. Yep. Yeah. Well, well Ross, you know what they answer. say? Whenever one door closes, another door opens a whole nother pain in the butt. Yeah. So. <laughs> My grandpa always used to say when one door closes, another one opens. And he was a great man, but a terrible <laughs> cabinet maker. <laughs> Yeah. One up me. There you yeah. go. <laughs> oh, God. So on that note, I feel like I need a drink. And I feel like we need to... Oh, there we go. Uh, I feel like we need to get to the Whiskey of the Week. Indeed. Oh, yes. Yeah. Now, um, Colton, were you able to partake in last week's Whiskey of the Week, the Clyde Maze? No. So we had... With all the complicated... Um, the technical complications, we had two Whiskeys of the Weeks. We did. But um, I, I did try the Old Elk again, though. Okay. And um, have you ever been in public, you know? And, yes, I have. And your you, butt kind of itches a little bit, but you, you're, not, you're not somewhere where you can scratch it. But you just let out, like, a little fart, and it kind of scratches it for you. Like, that <laughs> that feeling is what drinking this whiskey feels like. Is that a good thing? <laughs> Absolutely. I, I'm, you, you get relieved of wow. that itch. And, mm. Okay. Don't tell me you haven't done it. Were you naked yeah. in public when this happened? <laughs> like, I'm just asking because. <laughs> no. Oh, okay. I, I thought this was a more common thing. <laughs> <laughs> I always enjoy. I always enjoy reading the stories of like people who uh, think they're trying to hold in a fart in public. And my favorite one: this guy was like, I was at Starbucks and I had to fart really bad. And so I was like, if I time it out with the music that's playing, maybe nobody will know. And so he's timing it out. He's like, he's getting his rhythm down and he cuts it super loud, but right at like the bass drop. And then he realized he was wearing headphones. (laughs) Everybody in Starbucks turned around and it was nowhere near as crafty as he thought. Yeah. It's crappy. That's right. That's right. Um, I think there was an Olympic speedwalker with your problem, Colton. Just go search it up, man. That's true. Search it up. Yep. That's true. Gosh. And and the the love advice that I got um, from my father years ago that actually pertains here, and this is going to sound weird, but he told me at one point, um, love is like a fart. Uh, if you have to force it, it's probably crap. <laughs> and <laughs> This is true. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, on that note, speaking of whiskeys that we love, uh, I'm going to try, I'm going to throw this one out again. And Greg, you've heard this one from when we tried to record this before, but I'm going to throw Pike Creek Canadian whiskey at you. It's usually like a $30 whiskey. It is a port cask finished Canadian whiskey. So it is a heavy Canadian rye, uh, but Canadian rye in comparison with most American ryes is much lighter, much softer. Uh, and it tends to have a much, um, 
much easier time, whether you're shooting it, mixing it in cocktails or drinking it straight. It's just an easier drinking whiskey. If you think of the pantheon of whiskeys that are out there, ranging from your Canadian all the way to your heavy Isla single malts, Canadian whiskey would be similar to like the entry-level beers, the Natty Lights, the Bush Lights of the world. If you think most people typically jump into the world of drinking, trying to score whatever they can get their hands on, and a lot of times it is those Natty Light, Bush Lights, things like that, anything that is $10 and under for a 30-pack. That's usually where I would put a lot of the complexities of Canadian whiskey. There are some that far exceed that, but as a, mm. a general rule, that would be kind of your entry point. So if you're trying to get into the world of whiskey and you've been somebody who is a, a clear spirits drinker or a beer drinker, start out with something like Canadian whiskey. Um, the easiest cocktail I can recommend is just uh, the Pike Creek with ginger ale and a lime. Keeping it super mm. simple. And uh, going from there, but that'll start to open up your palate into what whiskey actually tastes like and how to then ramp up from there into the flavor profiles. So, yeah, I, I thought you were going to say the crown and Coke, but I guess Coke would cover up most of the whiskey. It does. It does. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, it, the, the problem is if you look at whether it's crown and Coke or Jack and Coke or, you know, Jim and Coke, as you said, the, the, the Coke covers up the flavor profile of the whiskey quite mm-hmm. a bit. And to be fair, the ginger ale does as well, uh, but nowhere near to the extent because it doesn't have near the syrups and, and other flavorings. So it's not hi- as heavily uh, sugared. I will tell you, though, yeah. the lime is what brings it all together. If you're doing it with just the ginger ale with the whiskey, you're like, eh, it's okay. Having fresh lime squeezed in there, night and day difference. So, well, you throw in cherry and you got yourself a Concord dandy. Oh, there you go. And yeah. Greg is, I, I, Greg I is confused. For... What is a Concord dandy? Oh, uh, Greg. So, um, when I lived with, uh, my buddy, Matthew, um, when I just got back from Midland, we, uh, we made this cocktail we called it the Concord dandy. So a dandy donkey is like a, uh, a vodka mule with cherry. Mm-hmm. I, I could be wrong on that, but. We uh, did it with a, a blended scotch. We did it with Grants. Okay. And um, so, yeah, it was, uh, you know, your ginger beer, your cherry, and your uh, your blended scotch. And we called it the Concord Danny because we lived on Concord Hill. And I thought it sounded really fancy. Hey, yeah. absolutely. Yes. Have you ever met I, anybody who says dandy that isn't fancy? <laughs> Don't think so. Yeah. That's Don't a think dandy so. observation there. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Greg, are you a whiskey drinker? I do. I I uh, enjoy a good bourbon. Okay. Do you have a favorite? I I like the uh Four Roses is I enjoy that one. Yeah. Uh the single barrel. Mm-hmm. Uh has a lot of good cherry finish. I kind of like that. Uh but like my everyday, I Larceny. Okay. Larceny is a really good one. All right. All right. Excellent. Excellent. I have, I've, I've had someone put me on larceny before. Yeah, I, it's good. You ever dealt? I was charged with larceny once. <laughs> <laughs> Grand larceny, we try to avoid, but larceny is fine. You know. Yeah, I don't. I don't want to. Did it? Did it involve oysters. whiskey at all? No. Oh, well, I was trying to tie it back. But it wasn't fun. You, <laughs> Are you a Scotch drinker at all, Greg? 
No, not really a big scotch fan. Okay. Colton obviously has partaken in some with the blended grants. So. Oh. Yeah. I can drink scotch like water, man. Yeah. No. Yep. Yeah, there's some fantastic ones out there. The uh, the Isla Peated Malts take a little bit more getting used to. Um, so, yeah. yeah. It's, it's, yeah Crystal calls Lafroig uh, cough medicine. It, it does have a medicinal <laughs> flavor profile to it. Uh, it's very um, iodine rich. Um, oh, yeah. And I believe I've regaled you guys with this story, but I'm going to throw it out there anyway. Yeah. Um, so I used to, in a prior life, do a lot of work uh, at different Scotch whiskey shows. And I met the, I used to work a lot with the Lafroig ambassador and he was fresh off the boat from Scotland. And I would, I was asking him after a whiskey fest in New York, uh, we were out at a bar and I was like, Simon, if you have to describe the flavor profile of Lafroig, uh, eight year old to somebody or the 10 year old, sorry. And you don't have a bottle handy. Like what, wh- how are you doing that? And he's like, well, I-, I like to paint a picture. Imagine you're walking down the beaches of, of Western Scotland. You've got this wonderful ocean air coming in with a hint of the sea salt and a little bit of oil from the fish. And as, as you're walking down the beach, someone lights a bonfire. So you get that beautiful wooded smoke and it's mixing with the oil from the fish and the salt from the sea. And as you get real close to that fire, someone throws a tire on it. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I'm like a tire he's like oh, I think it paints a pretty accurate picture oh, you're not wrong it just doesn't sound real appetizing so Mercy. there you go so Colton I would like you to regale your wife with that story uh, upon our completion of this <laughs> uh, I'll tell her listen to the pod yeah. <laughs> oh that's good man dude I love your voices too hey so you have a good uh, leprechaun Irish one huh <laughs> the, the Blarney Stone. <laughs> oh, <gosh. laughs> Jess is getting ready yeah. with the Badum Chings. Um, oh yeah, oh man, yeah. Uh, I'll I'll keep. All right, we're an hour and fourteen in now, guys. All right. Just so you know. Well, I'll save that one for oh, a different boo. podcast. Then don't worry. Okay. Um. So yeah, I guess. Uh, what do we want to cover? Anything else? Mm. Greg, you, you, you don't want to do any? Oh, you... I know what we need to cover. Colton, you you alluded to this a little bit before, but we like to give people kind of a nugget, a little bit oh, of yeah. education. Ah, and uh, if if you had to teach or tell yourself or a somebody who is a I hope to be boyer, what piece of advice would you give to that person? Man, you know, just don't skimp on the tool, man. Don't when you think you need that next level tool, uh, you need it. Uh, don't, don't waste time waiting on it. Just go out there, get it, find it, make it happen. Cause if you buy the lesser tool, you're going to wind up buying another one and it'll be sooner than you hoped that, that you would. So buy once, cry once. Do you find is that, are there cases and I'm sure there are where it makes sense to do a stepping stone where for instance, obviously the top tier tool is a bit out of reach but this one will get you a year or two until you get to the next one? Or are you more the... I don't, I don't know if I ever waited a year or two, though. Like, ah. it, it kind of got to a point to where maybe six months, you know. Ah. But I dropped, I dropped two or $300 here to make it six months when... And then six months later, I found it used for 
$700 or $800, you know, so it wasn't mm -hmm. a huge difference in price. It wasn't, we weren't talking thousands at a time. The, the, but, you uh, actually said something that brings up a good question in your world, or I guess to the rest of us, does it have to be a new tool or do used tools have their absolutely place? Absolutely not, man. My, my Delta Sander, it was used all day long and the guy I bought it from bought it used to. Uh, it had set most of its life, I think, in a storage shed and looked brand new when I pulled it out of the storage shed. So, man, um, and it was I'm a beast that. of a machine. Um, I'm all about that Facebook marketplace. Craigslist finds my, my, absolutely. First joiner, my first joiner and my first big table saw were Grizzly. They were 30 years old, according 1987, 86, something like that. Mm -hmm. They still were fine. Yeah. They still make the bearings for them. I changed the bearings out at one point. Right. They even, they, they even made for that eight inch joiner, they made a spiral uh, upgrade. Thing. Oh, nice. So I just the took that out, put yeah. the spiral. Yeah. They made a, they made a, they even made motors. They went from a three to a five horsepower and they still work just fine. Okay. So, Absolutely. All right. And some of them are even better than what you can buy today. You know, some of them yeah. have that heft to them. That uh, woodworking likes weight, man. Yeah. Yes, yeah. it does. Definitely. You want to know well, that also, your tool's not going to move or change on you when you're trying to work on it. Right. Yeah. I, also, I've learned a lot just from meeting the people who I buy it from. So, like, uh, you know, scavenging Facebook Marketplace, you know, I go to a, an old man's shop, and uh, that, that's if I have a nugget today, that's it. Is if you can ever get an old dude, an old woodworker talking, uh, don't say anything and keep them talking as long as you can. Cause you're going to get some good nuggets in there and yep. uh, learn from yeah. experience. So, like, a lot of times, like I'll go pick up like a planer and uh, I end up staying for an hour and a half, just going through his shop and show me what he does and tips and yeah, let the old people teach you. So I, I have actually uh, gotten quite a few tools, more hand tools, but like vintage hand tools from right. people who are like, oh my God, you're into woodworking. My, my dad or my grandpa had this big collection of tools. We don't know what to do with them. How about like a hundred bucks for like everything in the, in the, <laughs> in the box? And you look in there yeah. and you're like, wow, there are, you know, 15 Stanley hand planes that are from like 1904. Sweetheart, yeah. right. and you're like, yeah, I'll mm -hmm. give you, you know what? I'll give you 150 just for good measure, and and just just because I'm feeling generous, exactly. you know. <laughs> um, but I've actually gotten a ton of stuff that way, uh, and then the other way is I've found going to not resales of tools, but like old antique um, kind of not thrift shops, but antique stores. They'll have all kinds of cool stuff, and they're like, "Ooh, we have this vintage." wood hand plane or this vintage hand tool and they're like "Ooh, i think we can get a good maybe ten dollars for this and you're like okay well i'll i'll give you the 10 whatever but you get these amazing old hand tools that just take a little bit of elbow grease to clean up but as you said greg they were built better than some of the stuff now and you put a little yeah, tlc right. into them and you have a, a perfectly good tool that can carry you into years of years of service Right. Absolutely. Yep. yep. I have a, a hand plane from each of my grandparents. So your grandmas oh, nice were big cool. hand planers? Well, yeah, not the grandmas, oh. of course, but you know. <laughs> 
One was a welder. She welded ships together during the war. Oh, get out of here. Yeah. So her cool. her and my great grandmother went to the shipyards during World War Two. That's and awesome. Welded ships, man. Do you have any pictures? I actually have newsprint of the ships they were building that they okay. they had a guy, she said, there one day, and he wrote their names on the nameplate of the ships. And it was like a piece of old newspaper from World War Two that these things were printed Very on. Neat. That's so cool. It's kind of cool neat. stuff, man. But no, no like pictures of her working on it. Did I you, mean, heck, we carry pet cameras with us everywhere now. Back then, it would have been of course, a did, rare thing. thing. Did she right. continue welding after the war at all? No, she went to making bombs. Oh. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, simple things after that. progression. Yeah. yeah. Retired as uh, a bomb maker. Good for her. Yeah. 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 From being a bomb maker. Yeah. yeah. Nerves of steel, man. Granny is just <laughs> stacking dimes. Yeah. <laughs> Louise, uh, I bet she could take a pinch of chaw too. I wonder like what kind of welding. Lady. What kind of welding did they do back then? I I have no idea whether it was arc or they were just about welding. I have to be something like that. I don't know. I think Settle because it was something. a boat, it was arc welding. Oh my gosh! It went downhill from there. Yeah. There we oh, go. Boy. All right, there it is. I think that may be a good place to end it, gentlemen. I think so. <laughs> well, Greg. All right, I'm going to go get on my arc. <laughs> Greg, Jeez, thank please. you very much for for spending time yes, with us. Man. It was an honor and a pleasure. I know I learned a ton, and I have to imagine everybody else did too. Absolutely, and I had a lot Greg. of fun too. So, Greg, y'all have a great think- one, uh, and glad I could do it. Yeah. All right, man. man. Do you, you ever think that whenever we first started, uh, help you start first started helping me with woodwork, that you'd come be on our podcast one day? Heck no. Like, I never thought about being on a podcast at all. Like, what it was a podcast. I still don't even know if I know. That's true. Yeah. It's it's a radio station that Uh, nobody listens to, basically, is what it is. Right. Greg, it's real real special to have you on, man. I'm yeah, thanks for thanks for being here. So dude, I I appreciate it. Thank you and thank you for having me. Y'all have a great one. You too. Thank you, Greg. All right. right. Yes. Colton and the rest of us here, that's me, uh, at the Bench Dogs Podcast. It's been an honor and a pleasure. We will see you guys on the next episode. See ya. Adios.